Good morning. I'm back. Uh, my name is Ryan Stevens. If you haven't met me yet, uh, I would love to take the chance to get to meet you. I'm one of the elders here at CPNEA. Uh, and please, if you haven't met me, come find me or my beautiful wife, Nicole, who's in the far back corner after the service. We would love to have a chance uh, to get together with you. So the first thing I want to do is just because Greg drops this like financial and move bomb on us, everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> Show some signs of life. Everyone's a little like glazed over. So I'm just going to jump right into it this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a series, well, not really the middle, on the tail end of a series called The Golden Oldies. What we've been trying to do in The Golden Oldies is really reveal how God's heart for us is the same as his heart for the people that were in the Old Testament that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we serve today. So we've spent time already in Joshua, 1st and 2nd Kings, Jonah, Daniel, last week Esther with Pelzetta, who did a great job. And this week, I get to close it out. So this is the last Golden Oldies sermon, which is a little sad. I've kind of enjoyed this series. Um, so as I was thinking about what to teach on this week and what some of my favorite Old Testament stories are, I thought, why not take it all the way back to the beginning? Take it all the way back to the first man and woman that ever lived, that ever walked. Let's learn from them a little bit. Because if God's heart is the same for Adam and Eve as it is for us, then we span essentially the entire human existence, right? So the text for today is Genesis 3, 1 through 11. If you want to turn there in your Bibles with me. What I want to do is I want to take a close look at the way that we are deceived, the way Eve was deceived by Satan. What are his tactics? What are his tricks? What is he doing? He's still doing all of it to us today. And then, tying that in with the whole series, I want to look more at what is God's response to that deception? What was God's response to Adam and Eve's deception? And what is his response to our own deception today? So, Genesis 3, 1 through 11 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you may not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was also to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Then she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God in walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? So to shift gears, a little bit of a stark contrast. We're Alaskans. We have a lot of Alaskan men here. Maybe women that, that do this too, I don't know. But has anyone ever trapped... Anyone ever trapped animals? No. Okay, that's actually good. That's what I was hoping for because neither have I. But I Google researched it this last week. And I watch a lot of Life Below Zero on the Discovery Channel. So I feel like I'm a pretty qualified expert on this now. So um, 
in trapping, it's apparently fairly difficult. I mean, I guess that's probably why none of us do it. Maybe, maybe there's other reasons, I don't know. But there are a few tactics in trapping that are likely to increase your, your odds of success. So, Nate, if you throw that slide up on the screen for me. Where's that screen at? Yes. Okay, so this is my little illustration that I made, okay? So the first tactic that's likely, likely to increase your odds of being successful with trapping is the pretty obvious step, and that's that you have to go to the animal, right? You have to know the animal, you have to study the animal, you have to know its habitat, you have to know how it gets from point A to B, you have to know everything there is to know about the animal that you're going after in its own environment, right? You're not gonna be very successful if you set a trap for a fox in the middle of a diamond mall parking lot, right? You have to go to the animal. The next thing you have to do is that you have to confuse the animal. Or at the very least, you have to distract it. You can accomplish this by reducing the number of options that it has to get from point A to point B. Essentially, this means that you want to get the animal on one route, on your route. And then without the other options, or whether that's a perception or an actual reality, without other options, the animal will be forced to walk on only the road that you want it on. See? So next, you set a trap, and then you leave some bait. When you're choosing the bait, you want to choose something that's attractive to the animal. You want to play onto the instincts and the interest of the animal in order to lure it in. Because in reality, the, the job of the bait is to get the animal that one last step. You've already got it on the right route. But you want to distract it from the reality that there's a trap sitting right in front of it. If you get the animal's eye on the bait rather than on the trap, you're in good shape. Lastly, the only thing that's left to do is wait. See, you, you can't actually, like, I can't go and make the fox step in the trap. As a matter of fact, if I'm even there, it's probably not going to happen. I have to step back, I have to give it space, and I have to trust that I've done my homework in the first three steps so that the fox has one of two outcomes. Either A, it steps in the trap, or B, it doesn't, right? As I reviewed the story for today, I saw Satan do every single one of these steps to Eve. And honestly, I believe that he's still doing every single one of these steps to us today. I think he was the first trapper. So a quick review of the successful steps to, trap it, to trapping out of like Ryan's trapping manual via Google research and Life Below Zero. Number one. Block, limit the options that the animal has available to it in order to get it on your route and only your route. And in order to do that, you have to study its environment, you have to know the animal well, and then reduce its options. Second, set a trap, pretty self-explanatory. Third is bait, place some bait. Place some bait specifically that will distract the animal from the snare or the trap that's waiting for it, that will get the animal's eyes off of its reality that will distract it from the truth. And lastly, wait, which is all that's left. Let the animal do the hard part. Take a step back and let the animal do, make the bad decision. So as this pertains to Eve, let's look at the first step, which is block. And I want to spend a little bit more time on the first step than I do on the others, because the reality is, is that the farther we get, or the closer we get towards the trap, the more likely we are to step in it the more likely we are to be distracted, the farther we get down the route. So the first thing that Satan had to know in order to deceive Adam and Eve was he had to know kind of what their circumstances were, were, right? He had to know their habitat. 
He had to be familiar with the garden and kind of what had been going on in the garden. He had to know his prey in their own natural environment. So I'm sure he knew kind of the scuttlebutt, like what's going on in the garden and Adam and Eve are talking to God and kind of what's been said and how is that all going to play into his plan. I do believe that he did his homework uh, and that he did his homework well before he uh, went to talk to Eve. I think this is evident in a couple ways. First is the fact that he is indeed talking to Eve and not to Adam. You see, Eve had a very unique vulnerability. In chapter 2 of Genesis is where God tells Adam that he's not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the reality is that Eve is not even created yet when God has that conversation with Adam. It was after that conversation that God said, oh, Adam needs a helper, and created Eve. So Satan knew without a shadow of a doubt that if he was to go to Adam and try to deceive Adam, it would be much more difficult because Adam had heard the instruction straight from the mouth of God. So Adam was going to be more firm in the promise. Now see, the Bible doesn't tell us that, that God didn't tell Eve, but it doesn't tell us that he, that he did either. So let's assume that God told Adam not to eat from the tree, and then Adam told Eve. She's operating on secondhand information. She would be the easier of the two to deceive. Do you guys remember the game Telephone? You played as a little kid, right? It's like the, the theory of the game Telephone here is that I would tell Dennis, I would whisper in Dennis's ear, the sky is blue, right? And then Dennis would tell Michelle, and then Michelle would tell Tammy, and then Tammy would tell Tim in the back corner, and Tim, I'd say, Tim, what was the, what was the statement? And he'd say, the duck swims in a pond. The reality is that the farther from the source a message gets, the more it gets distorted. And the more distortion in the, in the original statement, the more likely we are to be deceived by some sort of truth or truth, some inconsistency with what was actually said. So Eve, not having been created yet, when God told Adam not to eat from the tree, had a distinct vulnerability, and that's that she was operating on secondhand information. She was on the wrong end of a game of telephone. And it really made her the ideal target for what Satan was trying to do. So how does this relate to us? Well, our reality is that God is still speaking today, right? He still speaks to me. I know that he still speaks to all of you guys. But yet, at times, I think we operate on secondhand information. We come to church with the idea that, like, oh, um, I need to know what Greg has to say because Greg is God and Greg is going to speak into me. Or we say, well, I have a problem and so I need to talk about it with my my spouse and my coworkers and my friends and my therapist and my pastor and everybody else. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying don't seek wise counsel. I think there is a role to seeking wise counsel and being responsible with that. But that's not the only step. As Pelzetta pointed out last week with her, her point of wait, seek wise counsel, and pray, not only hear what other people have to say, God may speak to you about something through Greg. He might. But he also can speak to you directly. So what's our excuse for operating on secondhand information? When we neglect to spend time in prayer, and then we neglect to spend time sort of in the garden with God, then how can we expect to actually hear what his directions are for us and then obediently follow him? If we're not listening, we're the perfect target. We're, we're ideal. We have a vulnerability that Satan sees, remember, because he's studying us in our own environment. He's already completed that step. He's already come to us. And if we are operating on secondhand information, he's going to capitalize on that. Almost guaranteed.
So still blocking Eve's exit. Still in this first step of trapping. Once he saw her vulnerability, once he had studied her in her home environment, the only thing that was left to do was to reduce her number of options, to get her confused. He had to block what was her usual route in order to get her on the one and only road that he wanted her on. So he says to her, he says, is it true that God said not to eat from any, from any tree in the garden? Almost like outlandish, like, he could have asked her the truth, right? He could have just walked up to her and said, hey, did God say not to eat from that tree? And she'd have been like, yep. And he'd have been like, dang it. She could have avoided the trap altogether, but that's not the way he crafted the question. Remember, he was crafty. If he had phrased it that way, she could have avoided coming into contact with the trap altogether. She, the, whole, the whole set would have been blown. So Satan's statement was intentional because he didn't want to hear her say, yep, or skirt around the issue. He wanted to hear it come straight out of her mouth. He wanted her, he knew exactly which route he wanted her on, and he knew exactly what it was going to take to get there. And once she was there, then once she was walking the path, then he could capitalize on its unfamiliarity. He could capitalize on the fact that she was operating on secondhand information. So when, God, or when, when uh, Satan asked her, did God really say not to eat from any tree, she gets confused and she says, no, 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 no. That's not, <laughs> nice try. That's not what God said. He said not to eat from that tree. And as a matter of fact, he even said, don't eat from that tree and don't even touch it or you'll die. Now I have to imagine that at this point in the conversation that, that the serpent smiled this big old snaky smile, right? Because he knew at that point that he had her right where he wanted her. He knew that he had her on the road. See, God did tell Adam not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, right? We all know that. But he never said that you can't touch it. That never came out of his mouth. Now, that being said, I can imagine that touching the fruit on the tree that is likely to kill you if you eat it is probably a bad idea. And that's how I would imagine the conversation between Adam and Eve went, was like, God told us not to eat from that tree, so let's just both agree that we're just not even going to touch it because that, that seems like a bad idea. But it wasn't the truth, right? It was Eve's perception of the truth. So at this point in the story, she deviates from the truth, and Satan knows it. And the problem is, is that sometimes the inconsistency with the truth and what our perception is of the truth can be really, uh, cannot be glaringly obvious. It can be very, very subtle, right? Let me say that again. The problem is that the inconsistency between the truth and what we perceive to be the truth is not always glaringly obvious. Satan wants it to seem trivial. He wants it to seem like no big deal, right? Subtle. It's easy to say, so what, Ryan? Eve is or is not confused about what kind of contact is or is not deadly with the fruit in the, in the tree in the middle of the garden. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a tiny little inconsistency. Well, we do it today. We still do the same thing. It might seem little, but let me give you some examples. We say to ourselves things like, I can say the words hell or damn. I can use, I hope I can say that. I think I can say that. We say the words hell or damn, or we use the Lord's name in vain. I can say that because that's not real profanity, right? Or we say, I can fool around a little bit before marriage. I can kind of date around and do my thing, as long as I don't have sex, because God's had no sex before marriage. 
Or we say, I don't have to tithe out of my PFD, because the PFD is a gift from the state, so I don't have to tithe out of that, because that's not technically income. It's a subtle little difference. It's a subtle little lie. It's not consistent with the truth, and Satan wants us to slip up just a tiny little bit. Well, this is hot. He wants us to slip just a tiny little bit because he knows that once we do slip a tiny little bit that he has us exactly where he wants us and that all he has to do is keep us moving forward down that path to just exploit the weakness that we've already shown him. This sort of subtle deviation from the truth is often the first step down a very dangerous road in deception. So once he's blocked all of our other routes, what's next? Well, he has to set a trap. Now, the trap, this is a little complex, okay, so stay with me. The trap is almost always a lie or a series of lies, blatant lies, bold-faced lies that are based on two things. The first is the, our own misunderstanding of the truth that we've already talked about. That subtle little inconsistency that got us moving down the path in the first place, that opened the door for these big, blatant lies. The second thing is our own perceived inadequacies. What do we see to be wrong with ourselves? So let's start with Eve's lie about the misconception, or with the lie about Eve's misconception of the truth. After the serpent saw the tiny little inconsistency in her story, once he knew that he had her confused and he had her on the path he wanted her on, then he could be assured that a bold-faced, blatant lie wouldn't phase her the same way that it might have as a conversation starter. So he says to her, he says, oh, come on, you're definitely not going to die, right? What he's saying really has nothing to do with the fruit. What he's saying is, God's a liar. If he told her, if God told her not to eat the fruit because she'll die, and he says, God's not, you're, you're not going to die, what he's saying is, God is lying to you about this. Now, he knew that he couldn't just walk into the garden and call God a liar, but he already had her confused. He already had her on that route, so now he could. And it wouldn't phase her the same way that it once would. He could set the trap, which in this case was an outrageous statement that was meant to make her doubt that God had her best interest at heart. You see, if Eve believes that God is a liar, then that calls into question all of her currently existing loyalties to him. If she believes that he's a liar, she'll do whatever Satan wants her to do, even if it's only for one minute, for one second, for one bite, if you will. So embedded in the same conversation is a second lie, a second bold-faced lie that capitalizes on Eve's own perceived inadequacies, on what she sees to be wrong with herself. The statement was, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him if you eat the fruit. The lie was, God is smart and you are stupid. See, by pointing out the knowledge that could be gained by eating the fruit, he was pointing out all of the knowledge that she currently lacked. He was calling her stupid, which actually was never God's message to her. And funny enough, he didn't really have to call her stupid, remember, because he's very crafty. He had to make herself call her stupid, which he did. He said, oh, well, well, you'll just be smarter. 
implying you are stupid, and she says herself, I'm stupid. It was her own perceived inadequacy. It was just another blatant lie, another trap that we would never have fall for, fall for if we had our wits about us, if we kind of understood what was going on. So you see, it all starts with that small inconsistency between what we believe God said or what we think God said and what God actually said. And then the lie, the trap, is always built upon our misconceptions of the truth and our own perceived inadequacies. Now, if I can take it one step a little bit deeper, I think that our own inadequacies, what we see to be wrong with ourself, is often shaped by that subtle lie that we begin with. Does that understand? Our own, our own misconceptions of the truth shape who we, how we look at ourselves, who we think that we are. This happens over time. These get planted into us all the time, every day, and we don't even know that they're there. So let me give you an example from my own life. As I was studying for the sermon, I thought of, this was the first thing that came to my mind, which is crazy because I'd never really considered this before. And actually, I'm sure that my mom and dad and sister will listen to the podcast of this message and that they will be shocked because I don't, I don't know that they ever knew this about me because I don't know that I ever knew it about me. Okay, I'm short, all right? Mind blower right? I'm small. When I was in high school, I was really small. I was like a freshman in high school. I was like four foot eight, 83 pounds. I was like as tall as Isaac Hammond. If you see Isaac Hammond rocking around, that was like 15-year-old Ryan. I could drive, by the way, at four foot eight and 83 pounds, which is terrifying now. So folks in my hometown actually called me Shorty. That was my nickname, and it stuck somewhere in like mid-elementary school to like early middle school. I'm not sure exactly when. And at first, I loved it because it was like a, a sense of camaraderie. Like I, like I owned it, you know? Yeah, shorty, okay, I can, I can get down with that. But the subtle variation in the truth for me, the small inconsistency that got me walking on a dangerous path was when all my friends started growing vastly taller than I was, got way bigger than I was. The in inconsistency in the truth was because I'm short, I'm not as masculine as they are. Now, don't get me wrong, I knew I was masculine, right? But I believe I'm not as masculine as they are. It was subtle, it was little, and it was planted deep inside me, and I didn't even realize that it was there. Got me on a pretty dangerous path, and you see, the problem was that that was the inconsistency, but what the lies became was once I was walking that path, then I began to believe the lies of, I'm weak. I'm not attractive to women. I'll probably be alone for the rest of my life. I am and I always will be inadequate. Each lie a little more blatant. God never said any of that. But because I started down the road of that tiny inconsistency that shaped the way I looked at myself, then I would allow the lies to be heard. So what did I do? I, I chose to take matters into my own hands. I didn't lean into God. I didn't really listen to what God had to say for me. First thing I did was I moved far away from my hometown to go to college, to a college that no one else from my hometown went to. I wanted to reinvent. I wanted to forget about it. I didn't, I didn't want to be known as Shorty anymore. And then I, found to I chose to find my masculinity in areas other than God, in what God was saying to me. I chose to find it in humor or in intelligence and academic success or in the approval of the opposite sex. Because you see, a subtle and well-placed inconsistency had paved the way for a trap to be set in my life. 
It had numbed me to the weight of all the blatant lies that I would receive, and as a result, I allowed it to shape my reality. And the funny thing as I think about this is, is that I know God has turned my rags to riches, right? I know that with Christ. But those lies shaped me into the person that is talking to you today. Those lies that were placed deep into me that I didn't even realize were lies for a long time have actually created the person I am today. Now, God can work with it. But it was kind of mind-blowing for me when I realized that who I was was shaped by some, some mistruth. Now, the final two steps in Satan's uh, trap are what I like to call the bait and wait. So, the bait. Once we've taken the, the step down the path, once we've started down the route, and Satan is feeding us bold-faced lies, crazier and crazier lies that we allow to be heard because we've been numbed to the reality because of some inconsistencies with the truth that we believed in the beginning, once we're so far down that path that we don't even know where it started, we don't know how we got on it, then all it takes is a little bit of bait to draw us in that one last step. So after Satan had effectively set the trap with Eve in Genesis, it says that all of a sudden she saw the fruit totally differently. It says that she looked at the fruit that she had only ever really seen as fruit. But this time she said, well, yeah, it's still good for food, but it does look super juicy and delicious. And if it's good for gaining knowledge, come on. Who could not? At this point, she made a quick pros and cons list in her head. And then she made this equation. This was her, the equation in her mind. Nate, could you throw it up there? She says to herself, she says, I'm hungry. Is it up there? <laughs> so she says to herself, she says, number one, I'm hungry. Okay, that's probably not enough to get me going down uh, the path of eating the fruit. I'm hungry. Number two, the fruit looks delicious. Eh, we're getting to the right spot, but I'm still probably not there. Number three, I'm stupid, and the fruit can make me smart. Okay, now that's enough. I'm eating the thing, right? So because of the lie that she'd been told, she now believed that the knowledge she was lacking was more important than life forever in the garden of paradise with God. She allowed the lies that she believed over time to shape her reality. And it led her to make a terrible decision. We sit here today and we're like, what in the world was she thinking? I think that every time I read this story, I'm like, what? How does this make sense to Eve? Like, what is she doing? And it's easy to do in retrospect, but the reality is that I'm sure she was thinking the exact same thing while she was standing there feeling naked and ashamed with a half-eaten piece of fruit in her hand. We still do this today. We still make these equations in our head. And the hard thing about bait is though, although the first two steps in the trapping sequence are mostly strategy, like where do I put the trap and what route do I think the person is going to take or the animal is going to take, the bait strategy is tangible. It's what makes it so effective. You can see it, feel it, smell it, touch it. It's money, power, authority, alcohol, and other substances, sex. It's tangible. Still don't get it. 
So you ever notice that you say, like, I'm going to go on a diet today. I'm going to shed some weight, and I'm going to do it first thing today. And then your friends call you, like, every single day, like, hey, we're going to Applebee's. Let's go. Like, really? Where were you last week? Or you get in a big fight with your spouse, and then all of a sudden you leave the house, and you notice every attractive person that you pass on the street. It's bait, people. It's intentional. It doesn't just happen. It was placed there. Spiritual warfare. And we justify terrible we justify terrible decisions because they just seem to like sort of make sense at the time. We laugh at Eve's equation, but yet we write these equations in our own mind every single day. It's not quite so funny when we're the ones standing there with a the half-eaten piece of fruit in our hand. So we justify stuff like this. Nate, could you throw up those equations? Next one. Okay. Should I stay sober? That's the question. Should I? Well, I'm under a lot of stress. Probably not enough to get me there. And my friends say that I'm more fun when I'm drunk. Mm, still probably not enough to get me there. I can quit again whenever I want, and I'm in the bar right now. Okay, fine. I'll have a few drinks. Right? Or how about, should I work unto the Lord? Should I, should I slack off at work? We say, like, well, I don't always find this job satisfying, and no one else in this place is working very hard, and they don't pay me what I'm worth, so nah. I'm not going to work hard. I'm just going to slack off. Or maybe a little more subtle. The other day I was driving to work. My gas light came on. It's always a game with Nicole and I. Like, it's, it's not a game. She doesn't think it's funny. <laughs> I, t I tend to leave the car in the garage with the gas light on sometimes, okay? And we live a long way from a gas station, so it's kind of a big deal. So I'm driving to work with the gas light on, and I'm like, man, I should pray about this. But then I think in my head, nah. I think I can make it. It's not that big of, a, big of a deal. I don't really want to bother God with a prayer about wondering if I'm going to make it to the gas station with my gas light on. So I don't need to pray about it, right? We write these equations in our head, and they just don't make sense. It's crazy. At the time, they make a lot of sense, but we're deceived subtly and then more and more aggressively until Satan has our mind right in the place where he wants it. Then all he has to do is present a tiny little bit of bait, and it's done. We've got it. So Eve gobbles the fruit up, and what does she get? She gets instant gratification, right? And knowledge and everything she ever wanted, and she's so happy. Nope. Not the case. After Eve eats the fruit, it points out that she realized she was naked. Now, in the last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis, it says, Adam, let me see, I have it written down here. It says, and although they were naked, they felt no shame. Although Adam and Eve were naked, they felt no shame. So after Eve eats the fruit, it points out that she realizes she's naked. And actually in chapter 3, the word shame is never used. But when we pair the fact that she realized she was naked with the last verse of chapter 2, we see that Satan wasn't really trying to get her to realize she was naked. Right? The Bible tells us here that when she ate the fruit, she immediately felt something that she had never felt before, and it wasn't nakedness. It was shame. By eating the fruit, she gets shame, pain, death, separation from God. The whole time, the fruit was trivial. The act was trivial. Satan was trying to get her to be ashamed. And for that matter, he was trying to get every human for the rest of time to feel that same shame. He knew 
that by putting shame in the heart of a human, it would be like putting a bit in the mouth of a horse. It would be his handhold. Once it was there, and for as long as we would allow it to be there, he could lead us around by it. Shame in the heart of a human is like a bit in the mouth of a horse. So there it is, the whole trapping sequence. Block, set, bait, and wait. I've been uh, looking back through some of my deceptions, and actually it's really interesting. I've been thinking about um, my shame. In the last couple days, that's kind of what's been rising to the surface is what I have shame about is realizing and tracking the shame back to an act and tracking the act back to the bold-faced lie and tracking the bold-faced lie back to the subtle inconsistency and seeing the whole process play out over and over and over and over and over. It's a recurring theme. That's all Satan's got. Lucky for him, it works often. But the text doesn't end there for us today. After Eve eats the fruit, she tells Adam to eat the fruit, and Adam eats the fruit too, which I have a whole different view of that, I guess, but that's a different day. So Adam eats the fruit, and then they make some poisonous underpants out of fig leaves, because fig leaves are like irritating to the skin on the bottom. So for some reason, they have all this entire jungle, and they're like, yeah, poison underpants. So they make some poison underpants, and then they jump into the bushes, and they hide from God and from a bunch of animals and from each other. Like, there's no one else in the garden besides those people. It seems crazy, right? They're hiding in there. God comes along, and he says, hey, where are you guys? Like, he doesn't already know where they are. And Adam calls out, we're over here, hiding in the bushes, because we're naked. Seems, seems kind of odd. At this point in the story, God shows us that his heart for Adam and Eve was the same as his heart for us today. With one question that has so many layers that I'm still peeling them back, and I've been wrestling with this for months. God responds to Adam and Eve's recognition of their shame and nakedness by asking them, who told you that you were naked? I believe, personally, I believe it was said with sadness and with emphasis on the who, like, who, who told you that you were naked? I never said that. I think what he's really saying here is, why, why are you listening to a voice that is not mine? He wanted them to recognize that the only reason they were in the circumstances they were in was because they had chose to make a, they consciously chose to listen to a voice that was not his own. He was saying, I never said any of that about you. Now the unfortunate application here is that we continue to do the same thing. As I mentioned over and over and over, we continue to fall into every step of Satan's trap. He's still capable of putting us on the road that he wants us on because he studied us, remember? He's done his homework. He's still capable of drawing us in and confusing us. He's still capable of leading us gently down a path of misdirection with bold-faced lie after bold-faced lie that we allow to be heard. And then worst of all, he pulls the old bait and wait. He drops some bait in front of us and he steps away. His work's done. You're either going to take it or you're not. He makes us do it to ourselves, which is potentially all the more shameful, Right? So we've all been stuck in traps that we allow to dictate our reality. We're all hiding in the bushes, so to speak, because of something. It might be a trap that you stepped in years ago. 
like me, or you don't even realize that it was a trap, but it's so deeply ingrained in you. Might be when you stepped in on the way into church, I don't know. So I sent this question out on Facebook, uh, the city, the website, a couple weeks ago, and I got an overwhelming response, so thank you, everyone who sent responses. I sent the question out and I said, if God was to walk up to you today, hiding in whatever set of bushes you're hiding in, if God was to walk up to you today and was to ask you a question, what question would it be? What question is God asking you today? Who told you that you were fill in the blank? Who told you that you were too fat, too ugly, too stupid, too short, too tall, too poor, too weird? Or some of the responses from our own body. This is you guys. Who told you that you were toxic? That your very presence would bring down a crowd? Who told you that your voice doesn't matter, so you may as well not even speak? Who told you that you were not valuable, that you were not wanted? Who told you that you would always fail no matter how many times you tried? Who told you that because you've sinned so much while you claim to be a Christian that God is just sort of done with you? Who told you that because you're not an eloquent speaker that you can't really share the gospel? Who told you that because of your past you can't serve in certain areas in the church because you're too tainted or too dirty for that? This is us. Like, this is going on in our body. You guys, you have to believe me. I sat in the coffee shop parking lot at 5.30 in the morning on a Wednesday sobbing because I got an email from someone that was so, it was just amazing. The lie and how deeply it had been written into their heart and that they had believed it for years and years and years. That it had totally shaped their reality and the decisions that they'd made. And now, because of Christ, they were liberated from it. So God never said any of that. That wasn't God's message. We believe these things, and then worst of all, we allow them to dictate our reality, only to find ourselves hiding in the bushes, ashamed and afraid. So how do we fix it? Well, it's going to take some work, I can tell you that much. It's going to take some heart, some soul searching. I had a really hard time grasping this and trying to figure out how to best convey this message, and then Pelzetta did it for me last week. So let's take a book, or let's take a page out of Esther's book. You remember Pelzetta's main points from last week? So how do we fix this? How do we sniff these lies out? You're not sure where something came from? First is stop. You don't have to take one more step down that path. You don't have to. Stop. Second is wait. Give God the space to speak his truth into you. And remember, Pelzetta's subpoints under wait. Seek counsel and pray. Yes, talk it out, but also give God the space to speak directly to you. Spend some time in the garden with him. Third is adjust. Adjust your behavior. Once you've been told the truth, turn away from the lie back to the truth. And then last is to move, to act. Move in the other direction. Listening to what God is saying isn't standing still. Listening to what God is saying is pressing in. It requires movement. You have got to step out of the bushes before you can step into what God has promised for you. You've got to stop hiding in your shame before you can really live in the life that God has created and promised for you. 
So I've spent weeks doing this exercise with myself. I've been pulling pieces out of my being and holding them under the microscope of who told me that? Where did I get that? It's been amazing. I've had to dig deep. God's still unpacking them for me today. So seek out the truth and squash the lies one by one. Eliminate them from who you are. You should be the same person, like I said. Those lies shape me into who I am. But God is capable, through his son Christ, of changing my view of that. Take the truth that God will speak into your life and allow that to start actually dictating your actions. Move out of that truth. Stop hiding in the bushes and start enjoying life in Christ. Because what I've realized is that Eve was naked and didn't know it and had no shame. Then she eats the fruit and she's naked and she's shamed. Then Christ comes. We're all still naked, but we no longer have to be ashamed. There is still nakedness. We're all still acutely aware aware of our sin. We're all still acutely aware of our human element. But in that nakedness, there is no shame. So I asked Will uh, to write a poem for us this week. I love Will's poetry. I sent him all the responses, de-identified, to the question, who told you that you were fill in the blank. I asked him to write a poem specifically as to what would God say? What would God's response be to the who told you question? So this is ours, family. Like, this is so cool to me. This is our responses to that question. So Will's going to give us his poem, and then he's going to pray us out for today. You ever be in a conversation and you hear somebody say something, and your automatic response is either verbally or inside you say, say what? Like it shocks you so much. That's what the poem's called. Say what? Who told you that your very being is toxic when in fact I redeemed your soul and I'm sanctifying your spirit? You see, you need to understand that I am that I am. You need to understand that the vicious lie that you've come to believe that you are toxic is absolutely fictitious. You need to understand that you need to come to me and realize the ferocious truth that you are loved and you are an accepted in my son. And who told you that I'm not interested in your joy? I love, I mean I love, I really love to see you smile. You need to come to me and realize that the joy of the Lord is your strength. I am your strength. And who told you that you had to be eloquent to share my message? Rely upon me. I'll give you the time and the place and the voice to share this gospel. You see, you don't have to worry about the increase. I'll give it. You belong to me. You're mine, and I belong to you. You must decrease so that I may increase. And who told you that your sin was so titanic? Don't you know that my son was the iceberg to make that ship sink? So don't you think for one moment that I'll ever let you go. Whether you are the liar, the adulterer, the murderer, the pornographer, the abortionist, outside of Christ, we would be the solicitor of them all. So I'll tell you like I told Peter, keep your gaze upon the sun, because even in your dark, I will be your light. And my child, who told you that you are your addiction? You mustn't believe that lie. It's fictitiously malicious. 
I want to be your addiction. Let me carve out the neural pathways in your mind. I want to renew your mind. And who told you that you weren't wanted? I want you. I want you for my good pleasure. You may call me Abba, your father. I knew you before the day you were born. I knitted you together in your mother's womb. You need to know that you'll always be accepted in my open arms. And who told you that your voice doesn't matter when in fact I created you with the voice before the day of your conception? To believe such a lie is the worst kind of deception. So I want you to let your vocal cords vibrate the breath of life that I've given you. We'll call it the day of your inception. So who told you the lie that you couldn't be anything other than what I created you for? You see, it breaks my heart that you think that. Who told you? I am the one who holds your life together in my hands. Everything. I'm your purity. I'm your intelligible joy. I'm your successful message. You see, I'm your new birth. I'm your plumb line. I am your recovery. I'm your solace. And I'm your identity. So, who told you that you couldn't be what you wanted to be? Was it him or her? Or maybe the people down the street? Or was it you? Father, I pray for my brothers and my sisters. Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God that we can call Father, that we can call you friend, that we can call you master. Thank you that the things that have got us tripped up doesn't trip you out. Lord, I pray that you would continue to open our hearts, that you would close the doors that need to be shut, and that you would open the ones that do. Father, I pray that you would bring around each and every one of us someone that can encourage us and we can encourage them that we can look out for one another because just like Ryan said the enemy is trying to bait us up Lord I pray that you would that you would open our eyes Lord I pray that for those who are here who are just dealing with life and even their own situation, Lord, I pray that you would free them in the name of Jesus. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We ask that you would bless this week and walk with us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a wonderful week. I hope I see you guys in the midst of it.